0: The Sisters Bloom presents Return to Nature, a podcast showcasing the people and companies reforming their industries with eco-conscious values, proving that even in our modern world, it's possible and necessary to live in alignment with nature. I'm Melissa Bloom, founder of The Sisters Bloom, an eco-conscious stop-motion animation studio. Our mission is to replace the toxic and wasteful practices of the industry with eco-alternatives. I am so inspired by today's guest, Sasha Duer, who is doing such incredible work in the realm of plant-based color and natural palettes with plant dyes and food waste and really thinking about the beginning of life and end of life of our products, of our clothing, of our food, where we're sourcing food from, uh, where we're sourcing clothing from and where it ends up. And it's just incredible the work she's done, just really immersing herself in nature and utilizing what nature has to offer and working with that instead of working against it as is so common nowadays. So to introduce her properly, Sasha Dewar is an artist, designer, and educator who works with plant-based color and natural palettes. She centers her practice and research on the collaborative color potential of weeds, food, and floral waste, and also local and seasonal ingredients. She's taught for over a decade at California College of Arts with a joint appointment in textiles and fine arts. She lectures, consults, and widely designs curriculum and courses in the intersection of natural color, slow food, slow fashion, and social practice. In 2007, she founded the Permaculture Institute to encourage the exploration of regenerative design practices for fashion and textiles. From dinners to dye for, to weeding your wardrobe and seasonal color wheels, her extensive work with plant-based color palettes have been featured in the New York Times, American Craft magazines, and many more. She also is the author of three amazing books, The Handbook of Natural Plant Dyes, Natural Color, and Natural Palettes. She is just a wealth of information in her field and continues to research and explore daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. She's in all sorts of ecosystems traveling around the world creating with all these amazing people. And I'm so excited to share this conversation, bringing awareness to the life cycle of our clothing and our food and how you can create naturally at any stage of that process. Hi, Sasha. It's so nice to have you today. Hi, Melissa. Thank you. I'm so honored and excited to be here. You just do so many incredible things with natural dyes and plant dyes and so much with food waste, and I'm so excited to get into all that. And I'd love to start just with your upbringing and what kind of got you on this path to do the amazing things you're doing today. Sure. Um, well, starting from the beginning, I, I think I was
1: always connected to natural dyes in different forms. It was just sort of an, an intuitive aspect of Spending a lot of time outside, and I grew up between both the rural coast of Maine uh, near Acadia National Park on a biodynamic Christmas tree farm. Oh, wow. And then my parents, when I was eight years old, we moved to the Big Island of Hawaii and uh, subsequently spent six months in each place for a number of years, kind of in the formative times. So I always look back at it in the sense of – you know, that that time, especially with plant dying, where you are literally connecting in different ways to your environment and more specifically to kind of that transformative aspect of working with plants and all of the aspects of biodiversity and appreciation that comes with that. And I think oftentimes that that is really directly correlated to you know, having a fort in the deep Maine woods for part of the year and then the other part in the rainforest um, with different plants and having spent time with those plants in different forms and ways. So I think that's still is you know, definitely instilling
0: a lot of that creative flow for me. So did you, when you were growing up, like, and you were kind of engaging and connecting with nature, like, did you, were you already kind of into creating with what was around you or was it more just kind of the appreciation? Oh, absolutely. I was in Maine. It's, you
1: know, where we were, was known for granite. So we had a lot of granite that I would just dig up and then grind into. I was very into making eyeshadows and paint pigments and anything I could out of it. And then the other aspect too is there are lots of um, puddles. And I remember this when I was about four or five years old is going into these puddles in the forest and just kind of swirling around balsam cones and opening them up. And inside of a balsam cone, especially at what time of year, you can see it has different hues and it'll smell so, kind of amazing, almost like grape when you open it up and like this purple inky hue will come out. And I used to just love that, that whole process. And even still, if I make a redwood cone dye bath these days or, you know, pine cone dye bath, it can really just bring you right back to those, you know, as they say, like smell is one of the quickest gateways to memory and I just love that that you can you know have this very immersive experience with color that can even take you back to different you know times and places through through the ingredients themselves so
0: yeah that's so special so were you led or, or kind of guided by anybody like an adult in your life or was this all just fun and play
1: <laughs> it was it was co, co-creative, co as always. I mean, my parents were young parents and back to the Landers in the 70s. So I think, you know, I definitely they were filmmakers and artists and farmers. So, you know, at the same time as they had Biodynamic Farm, we were also hosting um, New York theater troops and the Black Box Theater in the above part of our barn. And my parents, um, you know, they were they were always very open and encouraged us in different forms. I was also sent to Waldorf schools, both in Hawaii. And my parents started one and I went to Waldorf kindergarten in Maine. So there were a lot of very formative aspects to connecting to natural materials. And, I, you know, I, I do feel like I owe you know, kind of that openness that my parents gifted me, I, I owe a lot of that appreciation and kind of, you know, care towards that through them for sure. And then otherwise, you know, definitely have been grateful to have mentors all along the way in different forms and to have sought them out and, you know, in in very curated ways, but also in surprising ways too. you know, I, the slow food movement has been very strong for me in terms of mentoring, in terms of the crossovers with slow fashion and slow textiles and also herbalists and indigenous practices, like especially both in the places that I was lucky enough to you know grow up and and be a part of and so you know there's there's all of that uh, appreciation towards you know i don't know just the transform transformative qualities of working with natural ingredients and being part of that process
0: yeah oh my gosh there's so much to break down just in that last bit you said but i guess backing up just a tiny bit before we get to everything So how did you specifically kind of go in this direction, like going to school, choosing what you wanted to do? How did this all kind of form so that you just ended up exploring in this direction?
1: Yeah, I think I always knew I wanted to be an artist. For a brief moment, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And there's still that part of me that (laughs) gets very worked up when I see things are not fair. (laughs) But I take that to my work in natural plant dyes as well. So... Yeah, I I guess I was I was always wanting to work in the arts and to be creative. I also always wanted to work with the environment and for a while especially in the 90s when I was doing my higher education, you know, environmental ethics and Arts or studio art were really still considered pretty separate from each other in different forms, um, if you were to follow a career. And when I was studying, I went to undergraduate college in Vermont at Middlebury College, and I was a studio art major, but I ended up studying Eastern religion and also environmental ethics through a minor. And so, with that process, I had a professor who really encouraged this aspect of the arts being a way to look at climate change and be a part of it. Even back in the nineties, he was actually, um, his name was professor Rockefeller and he was a Rockefeller and he was part of a number of the early, um, you know, earth summits and kind of looking at different ways that we can connect through sensory processes, but also through, care and participation and transformative ways of seeing ourselves as part of the environment, right? And so something that really struck with me was that he would often say people will not listen to facts alone, like when you're looking at um, environmental destruction or climate, and that they have to be moved to feel, right? And that's the role of the artist. And so he was really, and I saw that when I kind of started to look at that, Something in me really decided that I wanted to be an environmental art professor and that I was going to figure out a way to integrate those aspects and to create another pathway of thinking or working and inspiring people through, you know, through the sensory and through the emotional process of caring and recognizing that, you know, you can participate and feel part of nature, not separate from it. So (laughs) there is that track happening. At the same time in college, I was a studio art major and I was working large scale in painting and the paintings uh, were about transformations in nature. I was also like very fascinated by compost and change and things breaking down and becoming something else or seeds breaking open. And so I was very into the abstraction and into that, like, that moment when that happens where something becomes something else, which is actually why I love plant dyeing because it's a very transformative process. But my materials that I was working with were oils and acrylics and other, um, you know, kind of heavily (laughs) toxic printmaking processes. And I was actually getting quite physically sick from working with the materials. So I would step outside of my painting classes, start to feel a little nauseous and be like, okay, I can go back in. And then something in me just clicked and I was like, my materials are not the message here. And so with that, I started to ask questions about how I could make my own pigments. And one of the things that was ironic is, of course, I kind of already knew because of the places that I had grown up within and, you know, those indigenous practices and the farming and all of the aspects environmentally. But... None of my professors really knew how to help me. And the books in the library were very complicated or medieval and using pretty toxic uh, methods of binding and even toxic plants. And I was just like baffled. And then I so almost at the edge of graduation, I started on my own process of learning. And in fact, it was going to a workshop. It was women on farms, really, that I owe a lot of um, formative, like aha moments too, but recognizing that a lot of women on farms in you know in different parts of um, you know the world, in fact, we're holding these traditions of um, working with plants from all these different angles, and especially for creative arts and textiles. And I started to actually realize that it was textiles I was looking into, not into painting, because I really wanted to know how to create something from nothing. And that history is so long and is a history of mostly women and indigenous people, you know, and it's like, it's very connected to a process of, um, you know, care and stewardship, and so that really started to inspire me and put me on my journey. And the more that I learned about natural dye, self-taught and through mentorship and through traveling and spending time in places like India or um, Indonesia or Morocco, you know, just having this wider view of what's possible, and then realizing how little we are connected right? So just like with industrial food, and maybe not knowing exactly where your avocado came from versus maybe you would live in a climate where you can grow it, or you can support your farmer, or maybe that's not available to you in that time of year. So anyway, it became like a bigger, wider aspect of that. uh, Just like with food, with fashion and textiles, we've become disconnected to where things come from, right? Yeah. And the more, you think about it in terms of like the easy aspects of color can come from a weed right outside of your door. Color can come from waste from your dinner. It's really home economics, you know, like that there's this element that we've forgotten in just a couple generations even, or by not knowing our supply chains or being able to support that supply chain in healthy ways, or just like that, innovation of creativity doesn't have to mean a box of Crayolas. It can be connecting to the soil in your garden. It can be connecting to the, the you know, peat the pitch, <laughs> the peach pit uh, from your tree and turning it into ink. And so that became very freeing, and it became actually kind of politically, environmentally motivating for me too, and really fueled. The rest of my studies um, which became going on to get to get an MFA in uh, textiles and focusing specifically on natural dyes and social practice and and then becoming a professor I was able to do that eventually which was very I it was very exciting to be able to you know see that this all can be very integrative
0: I'm definitely relating here I just I think it's incredible how you've taken it upon yourself to kind of, create and explore in these ways and then give that back to people and inspire them to connect to nature and inspire them to innovate on their own. So that's pretty incredible. And I guess I would love to now talk, I guess whichever direction you wanna go, you've mentioned slow food, you've mentioned slow fashion. And so I think this does tie into you teaching and some of the initiatives you've done through that. So I'll let you choose, I guess, which way you'd like to take this now.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So I guess one thing that's uh, popping up for me right now is when I was working on my master's in textiles, it was at the California College of the Arts in the Bay Area. And uh, this was in the early 2000s. And I was, uh, again, very fortunate to be friends, both through roommates and, you know, just collaborators Many people working in the slow food movement, and whether that was through the edible garden projects or, you know, looking at biodiversity and the different aspects of seed saving, uh, it it became very, very formative for me in thinking about how I wanted to, to teach and kind of think about my work. And so one of the first things that happened to me while I was in my grad program was that I actually, through both my sister, who was working at the edible schoolyard in Berkeley at that time, And then our dear friend Amanda uh, Ryu, who was the Edible Schoolyard garden teacher, I was able to get a two-year grant with the three of us to uh, work on arts and, you know, kind of thinking about using compost, particularly as art material. And with art being cut so often in California public schools, it again became another way or an aha moment of, you know, just like with healthy food or teaching people how to cook themselves or, you know, exposing <laughs> a child to quinoa who might not eat it, but because they grew it there themselves and learned about it and experienced it became like, you know, something that they were excited to try and excited to share. And so I feel like that became sort of the same kind of principles that I started to research and document and experience um, with textiles and with making natural dyes and colors and kind of seeing those direct overlaps uh, both on the micro level of how it affected maybe a seventh grader to see that they had, you know, empowerment to take an onion peel and re-dye that gap sweatshirt into something else that became personal and a way to, you know, to connect and to continue to connect and to recognize that. And then beyond that, I would say on the bigger picture is just kind of looking at the same issues again with food correlate. Almost directly, if not even more po- poignantly to fashion in the ways that people do and do not understand the ingredients and how it affects people. And whether those colors or those fibers are coming from petroleum or, you know, quite literally modern slave labor or they're coming from, you know, healthy regenerative practices or reuse or ways that support healthy supply chains. And so both of those were, you know, again, really motivating in terms of continuing to think and delve into aspects of slow textiles and slow fashion. And I really saw natural dyes as kind of this immediate tool, you know, because it's something that just like cooking, really mimics all of the same principles. And you can, in fact, use the same ingredients and more conveniently or most conveniently, um, oftentimes it's the part of the plant that you wouldn't be using anyway to cook. So the peels and the pits and, you know, like the carrot tops. And so it was just became like, you know, a continuation or an aha movement of how people will be motivated to change again, you know, or maybe connect when they have a sensory experience. And so I guess, Long, long story still, but long story shorter is that uh, right after my MFA, I decided to get a certification in permaculture, and instead of thinking about it in maybe a traditional sense of landscape design or you know direct farming, I just kind of went and gleaned the whole aspect, thinking about fashion and textiles in general, and the way as, you know, textile history, food, clothing, and shelter used to be almost always biodegradable and compostable. And so I started to think about, well, what are the regenerative aspects we can bring into, um, you know, working with our textiles and our clothing? What are the ways that we can stack functions? What are the ways that we can look at, yeah, I guess just different, (laughs) different elements that will add to the system instead of take away from it. And so uh, with that, yeah. So with that, I I got a permaculture degree. And then from there, I actually started a nonprofit and it was called the Permaculture Institute. And through the Permaculture Institute, um, we did a lot of community building and social practice work and environmental work kind of cohabitating with each other. And it was a lot of it was a lot of really fun formative work actually. It was working with slow food chefs and creating dinners to die for and inviting participants to work with the waste and the dinners to create beautiful textiles and kind of have this moment of, you know, sort of seeing these unseen palettes. Um, we did a lot of seed saving programs for fibers and dyes and worked with public libraries. It developed a lot of curriculum, including Soil to Studio, which is a course that I taught for uh, probably about 12 years at California College of the Arts that was very integrative in thinking about natural dyes as a tool for social practice and environmental uh, change and aspects. And, you know, it still is very core to my work (laughs) in so many ways. It's this uh, interdisciplinary aspect and uh, the collaborative aspect, too.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that name, dinners to die for. And I also know (laughs) you've done weeding your wardrobe. So is that the more of the slow fashion where you're dying? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So the weeding your wardrobes, yeah, we we love those. I still love those. But it became such a good way to either through Permaculture Institute, we would do them in community gardens, a lot of urban community gardens, and you would, you know, people could show up. It was a work party, but also bring discarded clothing that you didn't want anymore, maybe for a clothing swap or projects for the textile students that just didn't know what to do with it anymore. And so both with the weeds that you were taking out of your garden, we would make dye baths from those weeds. And then we would take those weeds from your closet or the wardrobe and kind of have them meet and become something else. Um, And it was so cool to see how you could just kind of on site, yeah, just kind of participate and upcycle um, collaboratively that way.
0: I'd love to now talk a little more in detail about natural dyeing and getting these pigments out of the plants and and like the process because just full disclosure what I have tried to do on my own is a little bit hard like and I I don't end up getting the color I expected mm-hmm. so it's fun I enjoy it but like then I'm like oh I'm not I'm not gonna be able to use it for my project but <laughs> it's cool <laughs> so I'd love just like um, just a general breakdown I know you have your books with all the recipes and a ton of information, but just for people listening, what's this basic process of how I would go grab a weed and create dye?
1: Yeah. So what I love about natural dyeing is that the process is very similar to cooking oftentimes and to mostly like extracting as you would a tea. So For anybody who wants to get started with natural dyeing, it's definitely helpful to have some books and look at a few basic, you know, how-tos or guidelines. Natural dyes love natural materials. So being able to have clean, open natural materials that are ready for dyeing. And then not every plant is a great dye plant. So doing your research and being able to see what plants have good dye qualities and then be able to. To properly ID your plant, so that you know you're working with Queen Anne's so lace, and maybe not poison hemlock if you're foraging, and so you know you're just wanting to look into all the ingredients and making sure that you have things that line up. Also, when you're just getting started, natural dyes or plant-based dyes love protein fibers. So, uh, working with wool or silk, you can often get darker. Uh, hues and more stable, light wash fast hues with less processing beforehand. And it's not to say that hemp and linen and cotton don't work well, they do, but it depends on what ingredients again you're working with. And so a lot of plants that have tannins in them, like black walnut holes or avocado pits or plum leaf branches, prunings, those all have lots of good tannins and those can work on a wide range of fabrics. So you kind of want to learn the principles of what can work or what can't work and just experiment. And sometimes it's about, you know, again, looking at those permaculture principles, but starting small if you're experimenting and trying to use exactly the ingredients you might see for doing a bigger project and getting your samples right. And just like cooking, building your skills, right? And again, like cooking, there's lots of different recipes even for working with the same plant. And, you know, it's great to just kind of develop your own skills, but, you know, to continue to, to just kind of learn from processes and recipes or mentors or collaborators in the ways you can too. So I would say other aspects besides having your ingredients in place, um, sometimes you can really bump the color, including the light and wash fastness with something called a mordant, which means literally means to bite, translates mortar or like to bite down in French or Latin. And so a mordant can help that color stick to the fiber or be a binder to stick. And sometimes that mordant can be uh, plant-based, like again, tannins, like acorns, if you were to crush those up and treat your fabric first with a little tannin that can help that bite. Or you can use uh, metals like alum salts, um, even the same alum salts you would use for pickling. And that can help brighten or give more long-lasting connection for your plant to your fiber. Or even iron, which you you can use like rusty nails or iron powder. And that can really sadden or shift your color. So it could take something like an onion skin. If you add alum salts to it, it could really brighten it up and have this like super strong orange on wool. And then if you wanted to shift that color, you add just a pinch of iron and it will, you know, go into greens or ochres. And so, you know, it's kind of just knowing what those ingredients can do together. And then also like cooking, not every plant wants to be treated the same way or has different processing, like an avocado pit can take, you know, an hour plus to get to those deep red colors. So someone who's boiling it for 20 minutes might give up because they don't see the red color, but really it's a much longer process. Or somebody who's boiling Coryopsis flowers might overboil and it could go to a brown. So, you know, there's a lot of nuances in the plant uh, itself, but generally in my Natural Dye 101s, it's really, you know, what you're looking for is that either heat extraction or time extraction. And if you were to go outside and pick, you know, some dandelion flowers, just going and putting it in a little pot of water and then simmering for 20 to 30 minutes till you see a color arrive. And then being able to either pre-treat your fibers with a mordant, like a binder that can help that color connect or last longer can really help. And then you simmer your fiber for another 20 or 30 minutes, turn it off heat, or take it out at that point if you like the hue. And so there's all just different timings and ingredients that can give you successful results. And then of course, choosing the right plants to the fibers too and the right products. So, you know, it's a lifetime, it's many lifetimes, but (laughs) yeah, Yeah. but it's worth it. Uh, One thing that I think is very important and that it becomes more and more, uh, something I talk about in my classes and workshops is also pH. So pH of your water and what water you're working with. So I kind of love that because everywhere you are, you can have a different kind of litmus test to your ecology or environment according to, you know, even the water that you're working with or the soil that the plants are growing in. So some plants are very pH sensitive and some dyes uh, won't even kind of, show up at strongest color unless it's more alkaline or it's more acidic. And so for instance, here, um, I'm currently on the big islands in Hawaii and we have rainwater catchment. So it's very acidic. And so a lot of the recipes I was used to working with in California behave differently here because the water is different. And so I really have to, you know, push the alkalinity oftentimes to see colors that I might not have had to push the alkalinity on before. And so there's always that factor too of just learning where you are. And I love that you become kind of like an environmental, you know, citizen scientist in that way. And you start to kind of learn what is my soil? What is the pH of this water? You know, and then also like when is the right time to pick these plants for the best results? How is my plant doing? And it really helps you to notice. And then research and learn the history of the plants or the area and then, you know, the indigenous practices around some of these elements or what is the waste in my town, right? What are the weeds? What are, you know, the, the plants that have shown up in different ways and maybe are abundant because they are invasive and can be used in different forms. And so you just start to kind of notice and again, participate.
0: Yeah. It's like being a chemist, like just kind of figuring out what it needs to get to where you want it to go. Yeah. And I love that too, about the idea that like, that this is indigenous wisdom that people before us have already figured a lot of this out. And so we just, we also have to honor that and research that and, and get that knowledge rather than just thinking, oh, we're just going to figure it all out again. You know, it's very true. So if I wanted to shift the alkalinity of something like rainwater, you mentioned that, like, how would you be doing that?
1: So there's a number of ways you can use, I mean, depending, but you can use something like baking soda or soda ash, which is stronger pH than baking soda, that can really shift it. Um, you can go to more homegrown solutions like wood ash from your fire pit, for instance, or like ground up uh, calcium, even from like shells or even like, if you know, if you're in a pinch, which I have been teaching before in urban areas, you can go get Tums tablets, and just break it up. So anything that has calcium in it. Or, you know, carbonate like soda ash or baking soda, that can all push the alkalinity. And so alkalinity, again, for seventh grade science is above pH 7, which is neutral, and anything that's more acidic is is below that. And so if you wanted to shift, if you have very hard mineral-based water and you want to see some colors, like, for instance, matter root with more alkalinity will be more truer pinks and reds and stronger kind of deeper hues that way. And with more acidity, that – deep red pink color, (laughs) will shift to more of a coral or an orange. So if you wanted to see even one plant go in a different direction, and depending on your water, if your water is very hard or mineral-based, which many parts like maybe in Montana it is, um, I've taught workshops and universities in Idaho and in, you know, different areas where you turn on the tap and it's just, the water is almost white with the mineral content. Mm -hmm. And so that can have an exciting effect as a dyer sometimes or a disastrous effect. And so you're kind of just, you know, again, learning about what the plant likes, learning what the fibers like and how to work with those ingredients. So, um, Besides alkalinity, if you wanted to obviously make your water more acidic, you could as well. And you can do that by lemon or vinegar or acidic acid and powder form if you want to be very specific. So, but
0: it, it is a big part.
1: It definitely can sometimes make or break a project. So, you know.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Just that it's still natural ways of affecting the water, affecting the dye. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. So I'd love to talk more about this idea of impermanence, that that everything you're working with, like there's this, this closed loop cycle with the composting uh, or compost waste, I guess, that you'd be using for slow fashion and just even just pulling weeds in the garden that people you know, consider to be a nuisance. We call them weeds. It's like they're just—I mean, I think dandelions are pretty. I have clover all <laughs> over my yard. My neighbor's so upset with me. I'm like, it's adding nitrogen to the soil. <laughs> <laughs> but I love this—I, this overarching theme of just this idea of impermanence. And um, I guess I'll just share. I kind of had this realization recently that, like. That you have this amazing beauty of impermanence in what you're talking about in the natural dye world, and then you have this impermanence in like the modern world of technology of like planned obsolescence and things that don't last, but they're not returned to the earth; mm-hmm. they're just like discarded. Yeah. So, um, if you want to speak on that a little bit, I feel like somehow this might play into what you're you're doing kind of more currently here, but. Yeah, absolutely. I've,
1: you know, it's, it's so funny too, because when you think about a weed, it's often a successful plant, right? It's a plant that's doing really well, maybe a detriment to other plants. You have to think about the whole ecology and that system sinking. And I'm just thinking about the weeds that are here. I'm in volcano Hawaii and the weeds here, the one that is pervasive is an ornamental Himalayan ginger plant that is just gorgeous, but it takes over the native forest. And so you're just like, okay, here's the weed we're dealing with, right? And I've actually been doing a lot of experimenting with with the root of this ginger which have a beautiful color actually but you have to really like it took me a while to figure out how to get to them to these colors um but it's gorgeous and so it's kind of like you know this ongoing conversation about you know balance and I think that's the key thing like even with thinking about uh you know how out of balance our our culture is with wanting permanence, maybe not dealing with bigger picture elements like death or overconsumption or practical aspects of how we really use things in our lives or what we really need or how we show up or how what what is meaningful for us, how we'll care for something over time. And so as a disclaimer, you know, with plant-based dyes, many of these dyes can last hundreds to thousands of years if taken care of well, and especially the ancient primaries like indigo and matter and welds, like the plants that we know have very strong chemical, phytochemical qualities, but you have to take care of those textiles, right? If you go into a textile section of you know, uh, a museum like the De Young Museum in San Francisco, it's going to be almost completely black in there <laughs> because it's protecting it from UV light. Right. And uh, that kind of care is also about the fact that it's nature, it's natural. And so when we think about elements of natural dyeing, like something that I kind of come back to again and again, as a textile scholar is that, you know, I think a lot of these colors came from, and I know from, aspects of research and learning too, that they came from working with food and working with medicine and they were kind of, byproducts altogether of the same thing, right? That many of these colors were important for, for health and vitality and maybe the compost pile and could give back. And so that's something I'm always thinking about in my work is with something like a seaweed dye, which is a traditional dye in some parts of the world, like particularly Scotland or Ireland or Celtic cultures. And uh, seaweed My best results have been on wool with nothing else added to it and just low heat, which is all kind of a beautiful process. But then at the end of that, you have this beautiful dye bath that is super nitrogen, right, for your soil that can become like compost booster instead of our synthetic dye processes where it's literally toxic or poison to our soil, right? And so I think about that oftentimes with, okay, the benefits here of this color are so circular and so important because the ingredients don't start or end with the the materiality itself of that product. It's about the process and it's about that full circularity. And so when I think about permanence and the impermanence with, you know, working with natural ingredients or plant-based timing and, you know, different elements of seasonality, it really helps me to see limits and to appreciate it. And to, you know, just like a beautiful bouquet, like, yes, that could not last forever, but it's worth it because it's a beauty, right? And it's about that connection. And there's different things you can do with it always. But in a direct comparison, when we think about permanence in our culture with textiles or fashion this is an example i use a lot but that you know bright red h&m dress that people are buying because that bright red is permanent right it's a permanent red they can throw it in the wash blah blah blah, blah. but their usage is not lined up. It's like buying plastic fork for a one-time use and then tossing it. It does not make sense. And that's how our fast fashion cycle is, where we are buying literally plastic or petroleum-based dyes and fibers for something. We love it because it's permanent. It's not going to shift or change. It won't react to your sweat. But People are not using it correctly. And three months later, it's maybe out the door. And six months later, it's in a landfill in Accra, which I just got to visit at the beginning of the summer, which is so depressing to see how much clothing actually gets filtered in different forms and never breaks down. It becomes like literally piles of this fast fashion is littered in riverways and in oceans where people are fishing out of it. And when you think about the process of permanence or impermanence, again, the word that comes back to me is participation, right? If you have a beautiful sweater dyed in turmeric, which is 100% like you know, healthy and medicinal and has been used as a traditional diet Ayurvedically and otherwise in India and in Hawaii here for many, many like thousands of years, literally. And if people give that a hard time, that's okay because you can keep adding to it. You can keep You can actually sterilize your clothes with these natural dyes and give it new. If you like re-dye your winter scarf with green tea, you are literally giving it an antiseptic to like clean it and give it new life. And so this is what I love about natural dyes and about that participatory element is that you can shift or change with it. And in fact, I have like many sweaters or dresses that when I get tired of them, I'm able to like transform it and give it another level. And, you know, it is much harder to have woven cloth or, you know, structural garments than it is to take the weeds in your yard and boil them up and put that sweater in and give it new life and then care for it or gift it in a way that you're now connected to the gardenias in your garden that make you think of your grandma, right? So there's all of these ways of, of, yeah, that I would say, like, it's more about the fluidity or like that like greater flow of materiality than it is actually about the materials themselves and holding too tight, right?
0: And the continuation of the process, like you're talking about, like we care for things long term and we give them longevity, even if they're fading and even if they rip. And it's so interesting, as you were speaking, I was like, wow, like the fashion industry is actually run in a way that would align really well with natural clothing, natural dyes, like (laughs) color of the season. Every season there's a weird new color. And I'm like, who came up with that one? Like no one looks good in it. But it's just it's kind of crazy that that, yeah, so we have all these fashion seasons and you have to, you know, you have to change with the seasons around us and with the seasons of fashion, but then mm-hmm. the clothing doesn't break down. So it just gets sent to these other countries where we forget about it, but then, you know, an entire culture is dealing with it. So it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so it's crazy. literally crazy. And I, you know, some of my most
1: triumphant times as a, you know, as someone who works with, natural dyes and goes into bigger fashion teams and works with them is seeing those aha moments really click. And I have to say, I'm probably responsible for quite a few designers like starting Apple Orchard, <laughs> or <like> just leaving <laughs> entirely. <laughs> but I believe and I, you know, a lot of these bigger companies will never be able to steer the ship in a way that's, you know, maybe the way that we need to, because it's built on different principles that are hard to change in terms of capitalism and consumerism. But starting small again, if you think again about that, like those permaculture principles or just, you know, sustainability, circular regenerative principles in general, you know, being able to start small, like I feel like that's been another joy of my life is seeing students have these aha moments. And when something works to continue to build and start to see, things shift and change or, you know, go back to more meaningful practices that have heirloom longevity to them. And I really feel like that is it's absolutely a key. (laughs) Yeah, core motivation for like where we are right now at this time in this place. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. Which is exciting, but also daunting. And there's, you know, it's going to be more and more of like, how can we collaborate with each other and learn, right?
0: Yeah, and just being empowered, not giving that power to giant corporations and to these big companies who are just about making the money and which, you know, that is what it is. That is the culture we're in right now. But I think, I mean, I've been more inspired by people like you who are creating and showing other people how they can be doing this for themselves and how to upcycle, how to take that thing you're just gonna throw out or try and give to someone else that's just gonna end up somewhere else and make it better and make it into something new and like repairing things. Like I tried to repair holes in things and it's fun. I did a whole, I had stains all over a sweater. And so I, my sister and I, I showed her how to embroider and we embroidered flower, sunflowers on it. (laughs) So yeah, I think just these, this empowering our communities to just start creating on our own and, and transforming as you were talking about.
1: Absolutely. I really feel, I mean, mostly for me, I, I mean, I am a natural dyer for sure. That is definitely part of my professional like resume. But to me, it's really a tool. Like I do see it as like this element it saved me so many times when it like just kind of brings this on to the everyday that you can transform elements that you can kind of deconnect from a capitalist mindset around things and that you can just kind of start to appreciate the whole. And a lot of that is mending and, you know, just kind of, to me too, it's like being able to pay attention, right? And to see every day, like what the potential is. It's really, I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to give you a chance to talk about the initiatives you're doing currently. I know you've done some traveling recently and you're setting up these amazing programs. So go ahead and share (laughs) some of that. Well, yeah, I, uh, let's see. Currently, I have been
1: doing... A bit of traveling, which is exciting. I'm about to go in just a couple of weeks to Sicily and work with the Slow Food Research Institute there. And we're doing a week-long workshop, uh, working with the seasonal color palette of Sicily on the farm at that time. of so very, very site specific and culminating in a dinner to die for. So, I just love it because it's just to me, that's research in a way that we can share and document and participate with each other in terms of like what are the waste products like right here at this time in this place? And, you know, how can we kind of culturally, environmentally support each other in these aspects around? slow food and slow fashion and seasonality and seasonal color. And so I'm really excited about that. I'll be actually going back to Sicily again in June. So it'll be really cool both in October and then also in June to be at the same place and to see what plants and what weeds are there at that time and what is being harvested on the farm and what might be the byproducts that we could experiment with or work with. Um, And so, yeah. And so, That is one upcoming project. Another one is I will actually be in Minnesota in January. And uh, I'm really excited about this workshop too, having grown up on a Christmas tree, but it's it's about to be announced. This is a little predating the announcement, but it's going to be dying with Christmas tree waste. So right after the holidays. So I'm really, really like looking forward to just kind of deep dive into compost and kind of thinking culturally about, you know, giving renewal to these plants that give so much to us, right? In different ways. Um, so that's another one. And and then I've been doing, I've, I've been as well collaborating, co-collaborating uh, with Yale School of Architecture, which is how I got to go to Ghana in late May, early June. And I also got to go lecture in New Haven in February of last year. And it's part of a multi-year grant with a collaborator. Her name is Mailing Loco, and her, her work is incredible. I encourage anybody to look her up. Um, she is a professor there at Yale, and she works a lot of with a lot of different biomaterials. Specifically, she loves mycelium as something to explore and work with. And this multi-year grant is called Soil Sisters, and it's really about learning from food, clothing, and shelter in different forms and thinking about what waste and agriculturally, like what could be scaled up. And it's also very open sourced. And yeah, it's kind of exciting to think about like bigger elements of how industry and even institutions might be able to shift mindsets and, you know, be open to possibilities. And even, you know, how can we make the soil better from our building processes, from our textile processes, from our food agricultural processes. So I just love all of, all of that bigger thinking too. And then, yeah, I don't know. Those are some of the projects on a small, small scale level. <laughs> I also am kind of uh, excited. I, I just I love color testing, and I feel like I've been having a little bit more spaciousness lately to be doing a lot of, you know, personal research. And I'm really excited about that. I'm continuing to think about like, you know, curating contextually through both books and you know tools in different forms to to be able to connect to color in different ways that hopefully can be meaningful, like whether it's color as medicine or color as like waste or regenerative aspects, you know, just different ways we can, we can continue to encourage that and kind of share what that looks like.
0: Yeah. Oh, so amazing. So I know you have to leave in a second. So last question, I guess I would love any, any wisdom you'd like to impart on someone who wants to, start participating and start, you know, getting involved in this process that you're beginning to empower people to do?
1: Yeah, I, I would say, I guess, something I often come back to at the end of interviews is, you know, it's so important to start where you are, right? So, one of the things is just that curiosity of even wherever you are, even if you're in an urban environment or, you know, you have a balcony it's just being able to start to see and maybe you have some curiosity about some of the plants that you don't recognize or you don't know for sure. And, uh, you know, just, just being, being able to start to learn about them, like, because once you start to learn, you start to care. And I think that that's very key um, to, you know, regenerative design in, in general. Um, so I I would say that that that's a very helpful way. And then in terms of participation, um, it depends on what angle you want to come at it from. But because you know, again, I'm I'm very multidisciplinary, and so. There's a lot of different ways to learn from each other, you know, so if you're experimenting and you have a friend who is an herbalist, for instance, getting together with them and just being able to, you know, share your interests in plants and learning with each other at the same time can be really helpful. Bigger picture organizations, like I would say places to just kind of connect to or, you know, kind of see what's happening in the movement. Fiber Shed is absolutely a favorite and friends of mine from the Bay Area, it's now Worldwide, but that's a great one. Just in terms of, uh, you know, regenerative textiles and looking at community bases and how you might be able to think locally or work locally in those elements, after having gone to. Ghana recently, the Orr Foundation, um, who I already knew about and really loved and supported their work, but they're thinking a lot about waste in terms of fast fashion and kind of waste colonialism and aspects of reparation and repair and, you know, kind of regenerative forms of what we can do to kind of make things healthier and more equal and stop Stop this excess and consumptions in the ways that are so harmful to people and to like the planet, right? Um, And so they are also an excellent resource. Another thing I will mention too is just because we're talking so much about uh, usage and kind of, again, the term that comes to mind is craft of use for me. And that was coined by a colleague and professor at London College of Fashion. She's based in the UK, but Kate Fletcher. And she has a number of books that are incredible. Uh, regarding um, just sustainability and fashion and textiles. She actually is the one who coined for academia the term slow fashion. And, you know, again, too, it's not about what you're buying kind of in this post-consumption <laughs> world because a lot of these materials are not going to be available. Like we are running out of oil. Polyester is going to have an end at some point. But how you use things, right? How you care for things, how you mend things, how you actually like participate again. There's that word, but participate in, you know, in that in that process of beauty and creativity that doesn't need to look like over-consuming.